Father, prepare our hearts for your word this morning. Open our hearts. Soften them. Give them room and opportunity to grow. Counsel us by your word, Father. Reveal yourself by your word. Challenge us by your word and convict us by your word. However you choose, Father, to act in our hearts this morning, as it comes by your word, let us understand it to be from you and not from the words of a mere man. And let us, Father, respond as we should. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to finish the story of Isaac and his bride-to-be, Rebecca. I promised that we would, and here we are. As we left off last time in chapter 24, the servant had been sent to find Rebecca. He had found her at the well. He had reached the point of going to the family. He had confirmed with them that the marriage would go forward, having explained the story of how they came to meet each other and how he was sent to find just Rebecca. And because of the convincing nature of the story, the family understood this is from God. We can do nothing but accept it. It was ordained. And so they accept the offer. The servant then responds by paying the price required for the bride, and he bestows gifts upon Rebecca. So now we have the point in the story where they're preparing to return to Canaan to meet Isaac. All of the details of the marriage have been arranged. Everything is in place. Now it's time for the servant to escort Rebecca back. And as we've noticed all the way along in this story, the past three weeks, we've noticed that God has fashioned the actual events of their lives to create this beautiful picture of an even more important relationship than the one that's in view between Rebecca and Isaac. Rather, the relationship between Christ and his own bride, that is the term the New Testament gives for us, the church. That's the the real deep story in this account. The remarkable thing is that God could take the simple story of Rebecca, Isaac, the servant, and Abraham and orchestrate their lives so that unbeknownst to them, they were forming this beautiful picture, this play, as I like to think of it, of this greater story, the story of God the Father who sent God the Spirit into the world to find a bride for his son, God in Christ. And as we studied last week, Even the smallest details in this story begin to mirror the events of this larger picture. The servant, who is the spirit, as we know, goes out into the world to find those who will receive the Lord's proposal. And the father directs the spirit to those who will respond. And he causes the spirit search to be fruitful in the lives of individuals. And as a person responds to the gospel, the spirit responds by betrothing that person to Christ. At the point of our faith in Christ, we become brides. And at the point we come to faith and we're betrothed, we're sealed in that relationship by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which produces blessings for the prospective bride. And as a result of that new relationship, the bride now has an opportunity to give testimony to her world, to our world, in other words, to our family and any who would listen regarding our new relationship. And when we testify in our own flesh, it falls on deaf ears. When we testify in the spirit, The Lord is glorified. And I should have added last week, the very best testimony that we can give in the spirit is in our actions, even more so than in our words. As the saying goes, preach the gospel everywhere you go and when necessary, use words. So Rebecca now at the point we left off in this story, she has yet to meet this new husband that she has effectively married, although the marriage has not come to completion in the consummation. 
So naturally, the next step in this process needs to be a face-to-face meeting with Isaac. That's the next thing that you would expect to happen. But at this point, she's a world away from him. Literally hundreds of miles away from her husband. And she has a long walk, a long journey to return to him. But she does have one advantage. She has the company of Abraham's servant, whose responsibility now is to guide her back to her husband. But before she can leave, there is a small matter, which the text now addresses, starting in verse 54. And that small matter is her family. And more specifically, their attachment to her and presumably her attachment to them. Let's pick up in chapter 24, verse 54. And then he, meaning the servant, and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say 10. Afterwards, she may go. Let's pause there. This is a very interesting moment in the course of this relationship, this very short relationship that's already established. They've done the official work of establishing the marriage and agreeing to the terms and paying the price. And so naturally, a celebration ensues. This is the usual tradition in Eastern marriage practices. For that matter, it's our tradition as well, right? Every marriage deserves a good celebration. In the Eastern tradition, the representatives of the groom and the bride, in this case the servant and Laban, they would have enjoyed a brief celebration at the bride's home, at the place where the agreement was made. And it was usually brief because the bride's family expected a chance to enjoy a larger celebration at a later time. The normal tradition for a marriage in that day and in this culture was for an arranged marriage, exactly as we see going on here. And the betrothal moment, the moment in which the price is paid and the arrangements are conducted, that was a brief affair. The bride, after that moment, would usually remain behind in her father's house, even after the betrothal took place, while the representative of the groom's family, the representative of the groom, who had traveled there to make the arrangements, he would then depart alone and go back to the father's house. And the reason he had to go back was that it would not be proper for the son and the bride to marry and live together immediately because the son needed to be ready for that moment. He needed to prepare a place for his bride, a home, and the ability to support his wife. So this son would continue to endeavor under the father's authority in his father's home to prepare a place for his bride, to prepare usually another room that was built onto the father's house. Once the father was satisfied that that room was satisfactory, to accommodate a bride, he would then tell his son, you now may go claim your bride, my son. And at that moment, the the son would actually depart from the father's house, travel back to where the bride was waiting all this time and surprise her with his arrival and take her and usher her back to his father's house where the marriage would be consummated and there'd be a family celebration taking place at the father's house, usually for about a week. Following that, then the couple, now duly married and and all official, would travel back as a couple to the bride's home again. And the bride's family now would get their full celebration, their full chance to celebrate the marriage. So the order was betrothed at the woman's home, separation for a while, son returns, claims the bride, takes her back to dad's house, seven days of celebration. Meanwhile, the bride's family knows that in seven days we've got to be ready for a party because they're coming back. 
And then the two would come back and there'd be another celebration at the bride's house. But in this case, that can't happen. Not exactly in that way, because in this case, the traveling distance is excessive. Moreover, it's unlikely Abraham's ever going to allow his son to leave the land with or without a bride. We've already seen that. We've already seen his unwillingness to allow that to happen, given God's promises. So the family in this case of Rebecca knows that once she leaves, they very well may never see her again. What a difficult thing for them under the circumstances. So whatever celebration they can do now, while they have the servant present with Rebecca, is all they'll get. And that's their motivation here for saying, stay a little longer. Let's extend this celebration. So when the servant rises in the morning, he is intent on making a quick departure, which would be the custom, and on getting started on this very long journey. He has weeks and maybe even a couple of months of travel time to get back to where Abraham and Isaac are. And now that the marriage has been approved, there's no reason to delay. Not from his point of view. But the brother, Laban, and Rebecca's mother... They are insisting for 10 more days of celebration. It's interesting to note in the text here that the father, Bethuel, plays such a minor role in this story. He's only been mentioned once and only at the previous dinner moment when there was the testimony given from the servant. He's not here now present in the story trying to change the plans. He seems to have disappeared. Apparently, from what we can gather, this household is not run by the father. It seems to be run by a combination of the eldest son and the mother, He seems to leave those decisions to others. If that's true, then it serves as an interesting contrast in the scripture, in this narrative, between Abraham's household and his brother's household. Remember, these are two sons, Abraham and Nahor, coming out of the same family, separated only by God's grace. But the grace of God in Abraham's life has turned him into the patriarch that the entire nation of Israel looks up to. And in comparison, his brother Nahor and now his nephew, Bethuel, are showing evidence of no patriarchal leadership, no fatherly, godly counsel in the family. In any event, the family's request is somewhat understandable, even if 10 days is a bit excessive. And the servant, his master is Abraham. And Abraham is expecting him back as soon as possible, as soon as he has succeeded in his mission. One of the concerns you may remember that the servant expressed Abraham was, what if I can't get this woman to leave with me? And Abraham's response was, well, then you will be released from my oath if you find that to be the case. And so at this point, the servant is in wonder about whether or not the woman is actually going to leave. But all the signs are negative. The pull is there. The family demands are there. What will she say in response to his insistence that they leave and return? Before we move on, it's time I think we considered what the Lord is teaching us in this story concerning the second story, the one I keep mentioning, the one of Christ and the church. As we entered into salvation by faith, we know that we entered into the company of the Spirit, much like you see here with Rebecca entering into the companionship, the company of this servant. And that servant is insistent on departing with Rebecca in a journey that will take her back to her prospective husband. Similarly, we have been given this same companionship for a very similar purpose. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. 
That's a direct comparison here to how the servant now has become a companion to Rebecca. For us, the companionship we enjoy with the Spirit is lifelong. We enjoy a relationship now with the Spirit that will not end until we are, in fact, face-to-face with our Lord. Paul says it's a pledge, it's a down payment. The best comparison I've ever heard, one I know I've used here in the past, is of the payment we make as we prepare to buy a home. We call it earnest money. In many respects, the word in Greek here for pledge is a word that can mean earnest money. When I buy a house, when you buy a house, the person who's selling it wants some confidence that we will finish what we started, that the deal we initiated will come to completion. So they ask us to put skin in the game, something of our own that we put into the deal that will cause us to think twice about backing out. We call it earnest money. God did that for us with his spirit. He literally put a part of himself in us as a pledge, as earnest money, to convince you and I that what he has started by virtue of our faith in Christ, he will complete in bringing us to glory. And that's the meaning, by the way, of what Paul says in first letter to Timothy when he says, even when we are faithless, he will yet be faithful because he cannot deny himself. When he says he cannot deny himself, he's talking about God cannot turn his back on his own spirit who we put inside us, which is why he will remain faithful. Now, at the moment we came to faith and received the Spirit and entered into that relationship, we began to wait for the moment that we would meet our groom face to face, just as Rebecca now is in that same period of waiting. For Rebecca, the delay was created by the necessity of a long distance, which required that she spend time traveling. Otherwise, she could have seen him right away. In our case... The delay we have to endure between when we are betrothed and when we actually meet the Lord, it's a result of our life lived on earth, however long that is, waiting for our death or perhaps for the rapture and our resurrection. In both cases, though, that delay brings a dilemma, both for Rebecca and for us. And here's the dilemma. What do we do in the meantime? What's this time for? How do we use it? For Rebecca, her challenge was in recognizing the importance of starting her walk back to Isaac, being purposeful, being timely about it, moving on in a judicious, quick fashion without delay. The walk was going to be long. You know, I think it's easy to minimize what she was facing. But when you think about it, she had a long, arduous walk, unfamiliar territory, not knowing what she'd find at the other end. And look what she has by comparison. If she were to stay where she is, she has a family that she knows, a home in which she's comfortable, a culture that she's familiar with. That's a pretty attractive option to starting a long, unknown walk. Wouldn't you agree? Plus, you've got her family. Her family is pushing for her to stay, asking that she spend more time pulling on her heartstrings, giving her reasons to think twice about a quick departure. You know, as that picture suggests, we face a very similar challenge. We have a similar kind of delay created, as I said, by our life lived on earth. And in the course of this time, we have the same challenge for what we can do or not do while we wait. The day we were saved and entered into the relationship that God created by his spirit, that day has come. So we are betrothed. But yet, the way I like to say it is, the day after I was saved, I looked an awful lot like I did the day before I was saved. I had all the same habits. I had all the same lifestyle. I had most of the same friends. I had much the same outlook on life. 
I was ignorant to the truth of God. I was untaught concerning the word of God. I was unschooled by those who had been in the faith. I was a babe in Christ on day one. But I also had the company of God's spirit. The permanent company of God's spirit. And he, as the servant to the father, had a mission which he understood well, and he was determined to pursue. One that was to bring me back to Christ. That's what we have in each of us by faith. A servant living inside us, the Spirit of God, whose mission is to persuade us to move away from the world in which we came from and to begin a walk into a new world, one that leads us to Christ. That call, in a word, is sanctification. The call to be holy and set apart and separated from the world that we once knew. That word literally means to be set apart or to be made holy or to be made pleasing to God. That's what sanctification means. It's a simple process. Yielding to the Spirit's conviction and His guiding influence in our life. That's sanctification. You want a quick definition out of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those are the three definitions of the word sanctification in that one verse. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You might wonder, how can the definition include the very uh, word itself? Well, because there are three parts to this. There is your positional sanctification, where you stand before God. Do you stand today set apart from God, holy before God? Well, in a sense, yes. Positionally, yes. At the moment we came to faith in Christ, the atoning work of Christ was attributed to us. It was assigned to us so that God now looks upon us in our current situation and sees only the righteousness of Christ for the purposes of judgment. So we have been made to be holy in the sense that We have no judgment. We have no guilt for sin. No need to concern ourselves with the payment for our sin. Christ took all of that, so positionally we are justified. We are declared innocent before God. That is one sense of the word sanctification. We've been sanctified in that sense. The second is sanctification itself, the word meaning to be set apart. You can see that clearly in John 17, 17, when Jesus praying for the disciples says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's the process of being conformed to Christ so that today I look a little bit more Christ-like than I did yesterday. And tomorrow, God willing, I will look a little bit more Christ-like than I did today. Unfortunately, the following day I'll probably slip back and look a lot worse than any of these days, but then I have a chance to step back into the process again and keep moving. It's not a one-way trip. It's ups and downs. It's good days and bad days. But on balance... As I yield to the Spirit, I'm moving in the direction of Christ. And then finally, Paul mentions sanctification in the sense of redemption. Redemption is that last piece, that piece in which our sinful body is replaced with one that knows no sin at all. The glorification that comes at the very last day, our resurrection day. You can see 1 John 3, 2 explain this moment very clearly. 1 John 3, 2 John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When the groom is revealed to us, when we meet him face to face, when we finished the journey and walked, so to speak, walked all the way back to meet him, we will be like him. We will be glorified. We will be stripped of this sinful body. So when you think sanctification, you have to think in three steps. By faith, I am positionally sanctified. God sees me as pure and holy now because he sees Christ and not me. Secondly, I have a work to do in union with the Spirit so that even in my day-to-day existence now, while I still confront sin in my body, I can become increasingly holy by the kinds of choices I make in yielding to the Spirit. But one day, even for those of us who do the worst possible job at that progressive process of sanctification, nonetheless, in a final day to come, when we are face-to-face with Christ, He will remove all vestiges of sin, and we will be just like Him, we're told. But that walk, that upward call of Christ, Paul calls it, let's not paint this as a rosy picture. It's going to have challenges. Not the least of all is the attracting influence that's offered to us by the world that we leave behind and by our family members or our friends. Even just the thought of leaving everything behind might be too much to accept for some. The world of sin, the world of selfishness, it's designed by the enemy to appeal to our flesh. And guess what? It works. It works all too well, doesn't it? That's the nature of sin. But when the Spirit calls us to move away from what we know, which is the equivalent in the picture here of Rebecca being asked by the Spirit to leave her family behind, you and I will have a moment to pause each and every time that happens. That upward call of Christ is like a grip that's been placed on us by the enemy being removed one finger at a time over the course of our lifetime. And every now and then a finger will snap back, but the Spirit never stops trying just to just to separate us from the world that has claimed us since the day we were born and begin to move us closer to who Christ is. How does that actually happen? In small ways, not big ways, in my experience. No one I know ever sat down on a day in their life and said, today I'm going to start being sanctified. And with such a grand pronouncement, suddenly all life was different. If there has been such a person, they're a greater man than I am. Maybe that's Paul. In his own life. No, the reality in my life is there's little lifestyle choices every day. Little habits that nag at us all the time. Various choices that we used to make in one way and now we're feeling a conviction to do differently. But, but still the old way is familiar. The old way makes sense to us in some respects. But in the middle of those moments, there's a new voice that we didn't have before. And that new voice is the servant or the spirit of God saying to us, it's time to leave. We need to go. You're running out of time. We have a date, an appointed date, and you need to be ready for that date. We need to move in that direction. Christ himself said it this way in Matthew 10, 32. He says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You never can accuse Christ of mincing words, can you? I mean, that's utterly clear. Just as Rebecca now, in the moment when the test comes for her to leave her family, feels the pain that this separation will bring, we likewise have that experience in everyday life. And we should expect it. We should expect a fight within us and in some cases with others when we try to leave that world behind. That's why we have the Spirit. That is the grace of God in giving us the Spirit. For if He had not given us that companion for that work, we'd have no hope to leave any of that behind. God's Spirit is single-minded. He has zero interest in the world of flesh. He has zero interest in the world of sin. And every time we choose to repeat the sins of the world we used to know, there is not only the continuing consequences that are natural to every sin, but there is a new consequence, one we never had before. Now, as we choose to make those same mistakes a second time, we're dragging God's Spirit through the mud with us. And He doesn't enjoy it. He has no part in it. It's not His desire. So the Spirit has no affinity for our prior way of life or our ungodly relationships and all that comes with it. So he will constantly call us to something better. That is the purpose that he plays in our life. Now, there is a plus here that I haven't mentioned. And the plus to all of this is not only does the Spirit have that call and not only can he bring a conviction when we ignore it, but most importantly, he has the power to strengthen us in the face of these fights and give us the will to succeed but only according to God's design. And God's design is that the decision to obey and take advantage of his power is left with us. The testimony of Scripture is clear on the issue of sanctification. It is up to us to yield to the Spirit of God. There was a story that I read that I thought perfectly reflected that relationship. You may know this same story. Between a father and a son... Ricky Hoyt, the son with cerebral palsy. And his father, Dick Hoyt, had wanted to find some way to fellowship with his son. His son is confined to a wheelchair. He can't move his legs at all. He can barely move his arms at all. can't speak very well. well. What can a father and a son do together? And the father came to the thought that he and his son could participate in triathlons together. Now, how is that going to work? Well, the father pushes the son in the wheelchair on marathon races. They've now done this to the tune of 800 races. Now, at first glance, when you watch this taking place, the temptation is to think, well, the son's not doing anything. He's just sitting there. It's nice to say they're doing it together, but let's be honest. It's only the dad. The son just sits there. But I think until you've walked a mile in someone's shoes, as the saying goes, you really have no understanding of what's going on because... In reality, these races are run in all kinds of weather, all places on the earth, and in many cases in weather that's very uncomfortable, very cold or very hot. And when you're the athlete, for example, in the cold weather, your body gets hot just by the activity and you start to feel warm and you can can loosen up. But if you're confined to a wheelchair being pushed through cold, freezing rain and you can't move to warm your own body up, how do you think that feels? Or when you're half drowning in the water as you're getting dragged along behind the father, which is how he would move through the water with his son. The story goes on to say, 
Tens of thousands of viewers saw the sun's role in this competition when wind and cold and equipment failure made progress hard on the sun on Ricky, even though his father was the one pedaling the modified tandem bike. The father, Dick, would kneel down to his son at times, who was contorted and trembling in the cold as the two were still facing many miles of racing. And the father, leaning over to the child, belted in the bike, would say, Do you want to keep going, son? The father was the one enabling and providing the means for that son to overcome. But it was the son who still had to have the heart to finish the race. What a perfect picture of our relationship with the Spirit in our walk of sanctification, isn't it? All the real work, all the real lifting is the Spirit's. But there are moments along the way where we're trembling and we're cold and we're uncomfortable and and it's no fun. And there's a moment where the Spirit bends over like the Father and says, do you want to keep going or not? And the answer is simple. It's a yes or no. But it makes all the difference in the outcome, doesn't it? One day, Rebecca was living her life in total ignorance of the servant. Until that day, the servant introduced himself to her and through him to a husband she has yet to meet. And she was changed by that encounter. And now she's being called by that same spirit, that same servant, to leave everything she knows behind in exchange for a relationship with this husband. But her family is there with her, pressing her to say no, no. And for us, it may be family, it may be friends, it may be habits, it may be something. But that servant is not easily dissuaded. In this case, the family decides to appeal to Rebecca for that decision. Verse 56 He says to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Just like Ricky, I will go. I will finish. That's the decision the spirit and the word of God calls us to make in every one of those same situations. We can say, I will stay, or we can say, I will go. I will stay as I am. I will stay where I am. I will stay who I am. Or, I will go. I will follow the Lord's will. I will leave behind my sin and my sinful choices. I will submit to the authority of Christ and His Word. I will break from the ungodly relationships and influences in my life. Those are our two choices. And unfortunately, one answer is not good enough. It's a daily answer. It's a daily question. And make no mistake, there's no in-between. There wasn't an in-between for Rebecca. What if she had said maybe? What would that have done? There'd been no resolution. The question has to come back a second time. Similarly, there's no maybe for us. Rebecca was married. She had a groom. One that awaited to meet her. She was bought. There was no going back. She was in control of only one thing, how quickly she moved to Isaac's direction. That's the only thing she had a choice over. She was either going to be moving or she was going to be standing still. Those were her only two choices. If she made progress, it's because she agreed to move. If she didn't make progress, it's because she decided to stand still. But she wasn't changing her relationship with Isaac by staying longer with her parents. She was just delaying the inevitable. And for the servant, look at him. He didn't give her multiple options. He didn't ask, where do you want to go? He didn't ask, when do you want to leave? He said, I'm leaving. Are you going with me? 
That's the Spirit's question to us. Are you following him or not? He sets the direction. He sets the goal. He knows where the master is. He understands what holiness looks like and what separation from the world requires. He didn't ask our opinion. He's just asking, are you willing to follow him or not? And when the world tugs at us, asking us to make the wrong choices, remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? In verse 17, 6.17, he says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That's the call. Not an easy one. There is a surprise ending in this story. Not so much in the outcome of Rebecca's story, but in the case of our second story. There is a stunning outcome here. Look at it with me. Chapter 24, verse 59. Thus they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. And may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now, Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac... She dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant took Isaac all, or told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. As they depart, the family pronounces a blessing on Rebecca, which would have been expected. This is a bittersweet moment for the family. They're losing a daughter, but hoping that things will go well for her in her new world. And as Rebecca mounts one of the camels, she's joined by maids, which would have been the tradition for her to take her maids with her. And that entourage now, we are told, is led by the servant on a journey back to Isaac, in keeping with the picture we just described. And then the narrative turns to Isaac in verse 62. Isaac, we're told, is living in the Negev in Beer Lahai Roy, which is the place where we last saw Hagar encounter the angel of the Lord. This is now land that Isaac owns because of the treaty that his father made with Abimelech. So when I say owns it, he owns the well, he owns the rights to use this land. So this is essentially Isaac's home for all that he has in the land anyway. This is Isaac's home. He's living here. And presumably he has prepared a place for his bride in this home. On one particular evening, in the case of the story, Isaac is out in the field. He's away from his tent. He's away from his home to some extent. And he looks up and he sees in the distance camels coming. And you have to imagine this is not a common sight. A a caravan of camels moving across open land in the desert was relatively rare. People didn't necessarily travel long distances like that unless they needed to. So it's notable. And he makes the assumption, this is my returning servant with my bride. On the other hand, Rebecca, from her side of this of this moment, she also notices now a man on a camel coming out to her when it's clear enough to her that this man is coming directly toward them. She recognizes this guy's coming to us. So then she asks the question, who is this? Because of naturally she doesn't know who Isaac is. 
She'd never seen the guy. She'd have no way to know who he is. The servant says, this is my master. This is your husband, in other words. And in response, Rebecca puts a veil over her face. That was customary as well for the day. Brides wouldn't wear them every day. It's not like we'd see today in the Middle East where women wear veils continually. That's not a biblical requirement or tradition. But in the day that marriages took, in the way marriages took place in this day, it was customary for a bride to meet her husband the very first time with her face veiled. In fact, it was typical that the veil would not be lifted until after the marriage was consummated. Only after that was the veil lifted, and it was solely the husband's prerogative, his right, his privilege to unveil the bride. So the servant retells the whole story. He gets to hear the whole story of how she came to be here with him in this moment. And we're told that they go into the tent together. They're married fully then at that point, And Isaac loves Rebecca and is comforted by her. Well, what's our surprise ending? Well, first, we know that right now, according to Scripture, our husband, Christ, is away from us, living in his father's home. But he's there for a very specific purpose, one that he outlined in John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus said, In my father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Christ told us that he left, but he is away preparing a place for us in his father's house. And that if he left to do it, we can be assured he'll come back, retrieve us and take us there. Christ has promised that he has a place prepared and he is coming to retrieve us. Look what Isaac did in our story. Isaac left the home that he has built for his wife, at least to some distance, and came out into the field. And greeted his new wife out in the open, away from both their homes. And as he comes to greet her, he escorts her back into that home that he has prepared for us. It's not as though Isaac sits in the house and waits for a knock on the tent. It is the groom who goes out and retrieves his bride and brings her the rest of the way into the tent, into the home. And also notice that Rebecca did not recognize her husband. It required the servant to introduce them. To make clear to the bride, this is the one you have been waiting to meet. And so it will be with us as well. The Lord, we are told, on a day appointed by the Father, will come out from his home just long enough to collect his bride from off the earth. And when we see him coming for us, it will take us by surprise, for we will not know the day or the hour, and we will be surprised when we meet him, for we will not recognize him either, except that the Spirit, our companion, will have prepared us for that moment to be a spotless bride, made ready for her husband, the veil having been covered, if you will. And the scripture describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 how that moment will transpire. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, meaning those who have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
That's the description of an event we call the rapture in the church today. It's literally the moment of the resurrection of all church saints, those who have died, the ones who sleep, as well as for those who may still be alive in that moment. This is an exact parallel to the picture that's provided in the story of Isaac and Rebekah. We are down on earth, walking, as it were, with the Spirit, moving ever closer to Him in our sanctification. But there's no way that in our own power, even by the companionship of the Spirit, we could ever sanctify ourselves into heaven. It's going to require that the Son leave His dwelling and come down and retrieve us and bring us back. That's the only way we're going to get there. But in that moment, we will be changed, we will be like Him, and we will enter into His presence glorified. This is the promise we all have in Christ through faith. And like Rebecca, we will rejoice in that union and we will enter into the Father's glory. I hope you look forward to that moment as I do. It could be at any moment. It's been an ever-present possibility since the time of Christ's departure. It remains so today. Like John says at the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But let's pray that we're all ready for that moment and not sitting around delaying our departure. Father, thank you for the teaching you've provided through your word, both in the story of Rebecca and Isaac and also in the picture it provides of your church wedded to you. Let us reflect on this story, Father, in the years to come, on what we've learned and what we may yet learn, looking, Father, for even more opportunity to be like you, to say yes to the Spirit, to understand that we are moving ever-present closer to you, but also, Father, living in that hopeful expectation that because of faith, we've been made righteous positionally, are being made righteous, Father, in our progressive walk, but will also one day, Father, reach a position of perfection like you, but not by our work and not by our effort, but by your grace. Thank you for that testimony and hope. And let our little church, Father, be a messenger, a representative of all three of those stages of sanctification, that we would preach the truth of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, and that we would preach the necessity of yielding to the Spirit and of active living in the faith that we have, of doing the works that faith requires so that we may become Christ-like. And let us also rejoice in our hope, the hope that is unique to those who have faith in Christ, that one day we will be like Him. Thank you for the message of your word. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.